0: Okay guys, welcome to episode 30 of the Bolt in the Blue podcast, and here tonight we have Peter Swale's Era Part 2. We hope that you listened to Part 1. If you haven't done that, please check that out. And we're on Part 2 tonight. And uh, with us, we have Colin Savage. Colin, how are you? Good. It's been a bit of a long day, actually,
1: but um, yeah, I'm good. Thank
0: you. Okay, and we also have David Gregory as well tonight. Hi, David. How are you doing? Very well.
2: Recovering from Wednesday, because there was a bad accident on the A628 going back. Mm. So a journey that normally takes between one and a half and two hours took
0: over three and a half. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so what we're going to do is a little bit of a recap, Colin, of where we had got to in episode one. And then we'll fire on ahead and see how far we can get towards the end. So we'll go for about an hour. And we'll get into this. So take it away, Colin. Yeah. So
1: just to recap very quickly, we talked about Peter Swell's early life. We talked about how he became involved in the City takeover standoff that was going on around 1970. Uh, he took the chair in 1973. Tony Buck was his first managerial appointment in Easter 1974. And we talked about some of those early seasons. It was a great period for the club. We, we, we had some sensible, high quality players come in. We had a great mix of youth and experience. Although we lost the League Cup in 1974, we won it in 1976, giving Peter Swales his first trophy. And we really should have won the league in 1976-77. We lost out by a point to Liverpool. So that, I think, is the point that we cut off last time. So really, we're at um, the 1977-78 season. We've we've won the League Cup. We've come runners-up in the league the following season. So everything looks, from a chairmanship point of view, everything looks fantastic. And the one we we brought in was perhaps one of the more controversial players, was Mike Shannon. He's nearly 29 at this point, England international, very experienced. Didn't quite work out for him at City, though he stayed with us for about 18 months. But the the squad at that point, just to recap, the normal first team is Joe Corrigan, Kenny Clements, Willie Donnelly, Tommy Booth, Dave Watson, Gary Owen, Peter Barnes, who are breaking through, Mike Challen and Brian Kidd, who are the older experienced players, Asa Hartford, Dennis Stewart, Paul Power. Colin Bell's injured at this point, and um, Joe Royal and Mike Doyle are, are winding down, really, and, and on their way out. And 77-78 uh, was a crucial season because I think I'm going to talk about one particular game, which I think was the start of... Maybe all our problems that we'll talk about in the next few seasons. But at the start of the season, we were unbeaten in the first four games. And the fifth game was a derby. And we won that 3-1. And I think we were top. After that game, we were top on goal difference ahead of Liverpool, with with both teams unbeaten, as it happens. So it was a bit similar to the situation a, a few weeks ago. And then the game that I think started the problem was our UEFA Cup tie against uh, Vitev Loge. We played the first leg at Main Road in mid-September, 14th of September. And and, and Visead Lodz were, you know, one of the great Polish teams. Um, They should have been, in theory, cannon fodder for for a team of our experience and quality. But they had this um, young lad called Boniek, who was getting a bit of a name for himself. But even so, the game was seemingly well under our control. We were 2-0 up with 15 minutes to go and then Boniek, I think, came on as a sub. He got a penalty and scored a free kick in the last 10-15 minutes. City just kind of lost their heads a bit. Willie Donicky got himself sent off. I, I can't, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I have this vision in my head of him just kicking Bonnieak into the kipax for no apparent reason when the ball was nowhere near him. But it was most unwilly donicky like. It was normally the most level-headed, calm player you could hope to see. And I think it just got to City that that particular result, you know, having been 2-0 up with 15 minutes to go, and then we we drew of course two away goals. There was some crowd trouble as well when when um Uh, Vitev equalised and that to me was almost the start of our problem things seemed to start going wrong from from that moment onwards although we we still had a few moments of of great glory the the second leg was two weeks later in 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 Lodge and we we drew that nil-nil so we went out on away goals and that seemed to throw us off our stride because we only won one out of five league games then till Liverpool came to town who obviously are had been our rivals at the top of the league before we played Vidsev Lodge. By the time Liverpool came to town, it was October 1977. Brian Clough was at Forest. By this point, they were well on top. But we were fourth. We were five points behind Forest uh, in top place. And I don't know if David was at that game or remembers it, but for me, this was one of the great games I ever saw at Main Road. We Liverpool were getting to the point where they were becoming all-conquering at that point. Would Noel White have been involved
0: with Liverpool by that point?
2: Yeah well it, just an update on last time the last podcast we talked about uh, Swales and his business partner Noel White and we said we weren't really sure what happened and a bit more digging that I've done the way it came across in what I've looked at is that city approached both of them as a, as a as a business unit looking for investment Peter Swales said yes we are very interested and he Bought in to City. Noel White didn't. Noel White went to Liverpool... And then Noel White was very instrumental in how Liverpool developed. Uh, they both worked in the FA as well, but Noel White did do a lot of very good work, a lot of it behind the scenes. And because he was, I mean, it, it strikes me looking at that that you know we got the worst part of the deal. <laughs> that one of them was, you know, one of them was a much sounder businessman uh, than the other. Uh, and as we said last week, you know, Peter was the eye for the main chance. Uh, and it seems like Noel sort of, oh, off you go then. Um, um, and that that sort of brings it into more context because he couldn't, the only way he got into City's boardroom was by buying his way
1: in. And that's well, what he did. Well, uh, yeah, uh, well, we had this conversation. I don't want to go over old ground, but um, obviously the, the, the two things in that, one was Peter Swell's story about he saw Sidney Rose and John Humphreys in a pub, which everyone says never happened, including Sidney Rose mm. and um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Eric Alexander. And also that it, well, it confirms the story that we approach Swales and White. Yeah, yeah, So, so, so that doubly confirms that that you know I saw Sydney and John in a pub, and I went over to say hello and tell them I could help them is is a load of crap, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, and certainly it also confirms the point I made last week that Peter Swales said he was basically the man in the middle between the two factions. But as we saw last in the last podcast. Peter had a significant number of shares himself. Uh, he was also backed by Greenall Whitney, who, yeah, who,
2: who came in later w- on. Yeah, w- were, the, were the main beer suppliers I, to, I gonna, to Main yeah,
1: Road? I was going uh, to come But they the had share. a big, big, big share input as well. But they they had twenty percent of us when we had a big share issue. So yeah. so yeah, that that sort of confirms that Peter's story about approaching Sydney and. Rose and John Humphreys in the pub was was rubbish. And the story about him being the you know, having no actual power himself, but being the man in the middle is also to be taken with a pinch of salt. So yeah, to go back to that game, Swales and White would have been on opposing sides. But that, that was one of the finest games I ever saw at Main Road. And I remember we went one nil down to Liverpool, who were say on the verge of becoming this. I'm not sure if Shankly or Paisley was the manager at that point, but they were on the verge of becoming this all-conquering one of the best club sides ever in Europe, probably. We went one nil down, which was normally the signal to go three or four nil down against Liverpool, even at Main Road. But somehow, after half time, we fought back and we ended the game three one. remember, the atmosphere was just incredible that day, particularly in that second half. So that's that's a game that always stuck in my mind. Uh, you know, and it showed we have the ability to match the top clubs as Liverpool will be coming. Well, we were a top club, and anyway, it was one of the best. I think someone I can't remember who said it. But maybe one of the commentators at the time said it's still one of the best games of football, best exhibitions of football I've ever seen. And it was that good. But th- then we fall away. And by Christmas 1977, we were down to towards mid-table. And then, of course, we had the famous Boxing Day game against Newcastle. And Colin Bell was on the bench, of course. Tony Book had planned to bring him on with about 20 minutes to go, you know, give him a bit of a run out. But unfortunately, I can't remember who it was. Whoever it was was injured at half-time. So we had to bring Colin Bell on at half time. And anyone who was there that day, well, we'll I don't David, I don't know if he were there, will tell you what it was
2: no, right. just, just the emotion. Yeah, just oh, raw incredible. emotion.
1: Yeah. Uh, of course we didn't know, you know, we didn't have the, the, the boards in those days or the announcers or whatever. So the first sight we got was Colin Bell, the people in the Kippax, in the centre of the Kippax, could see Colin Bell coming up the tunnel. Uh, you know, ready to come on, and the cheer started. And of course, when he appeared, the whole ground just stood up and erupted, and people wow. were crying. And I always remember someone ran on the pitch and put a, a crown on his head. And um, we were nil nil at, at that point at half time, and then we we won four nil in the. Second half, Dennis Stewart was absolutely on fire that day. And then we went the next um, nine games unbeaten. So Colin Bell, you know, Peter Swales, said Colin Bell was one of the, you know, losing him was a big blow to us. He was one of the big influences. And that sort of kind of proves it, really. Tony Book. this is why I said this was a crucial season, because Tony Book, I think, is starting to lose his touch a little bit. He'd done really well for us. We were really on the verge of great things. United had come, you know, we're, we're still struggling a bit. I think we were nearly matching them for crowds at this point. Certainly probably more success, successful. And then Tony Book starts to lose it a little bit, I think, because um, Dennis Stewart, he sort of seemed to have fallen out with Dennis Stewart in some way. Dennis Stewart was only 28 at this point. He had a bit of an injury, and Book said to him, you know, you're not an automatic first choice anymore. Uh, and Stuart was quite upset about that. So so he decided to, to go. Mike Doyle and, and Joe Royal were, um, weren't were in favour either, uh, and they went at the end of that season. So we've got three real stalwarts. I mean, Joe Royal hadn't been with us that long, but Dennis Stuart and, and, and Mike Doyle were real club stalwarts, and Stuart was a very consistent goal scorer. Anyway, that season we finished fourth, but we were... 12 points behind Forrest, say, uh, a Brian Clough Forest, And we were five off Liverpool in second place. So, you know, it wasn't, it would have got us into the um, Champions League these days, finishing fourth, of course, but um, it did get us into the UEFA Cup. I can't remember how they changed it. So, oh, all right, you know, it, it, it wasn't a great season. We, we didn't really capitalise too much on what we'd done the previous two seasons. But, you know, we, 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 were, we were still there or thereabouts. And and it's a bit like Clough was a bit like Guardiola. You know, everyone else is at a disadvantage when you were playing a, against a, a Clough team, whether that was Derby or Forrest. So at the beginning of the 78-79 season, this is where the transfers, I think, start to go wrong. So so the big one who comes in is Paul Futcher. Paul or Ron Futcher, I can't remember which one. We signed both twins. But what one, the centre half, I think it was Paul, was the better one. So I think we paid yeah. 350k for him. We played 80k for his twin, Ron. And we signed Colin Viljan, who was the South African playing for Ipswich. Again, very experienced player. Uh, I think we signed him. We we spent about 100k on him. So we spent just over half a million on three players. And none of these players were really as successful as they should have been. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Paul fortune wasn't bad Bill Jim wasn't bad But you couldn't say Any of them Could you David we Were runaway successes Well he, he also introduced um, Kazi Denya That year Yeah
0: Loved that, uh, Love that guy
2: yeah. yeah Barry Silkman joined uh, yes, Who's now right. a very famous agent did, But more yeah. importantly We had Ray Ransom Nicky Reid and Tony Henry coming up from the youth ranks where Jed Keegan had, had come in at the back end of the last season now Jed Keegan never ever fulfilled his true potential but in in Ray Ranson and Nicky Reed we had players coming in then that were going to serve the club extremely well in the coming years um when we look back you know hindsight is a wonderful thing you know we get to the end of the 78 79 season we're 15th Mm, and, yeah. and the, you know, the, the gloss that we had before, the, you know, the, we'd lost far too many good players. Dennis has gone. Mike Doyle's gone. Joe Royal's gone. Uh, Kenny Clements had gone halfway through that season. he did come back at a later date. But, you know, too, far too many good players gone. And then you've got the clamour for Malcolm. Yeah, Now, it, it's a wonderful gift, hindsight, but what you ha- we have to take into consideration was that decisions are made in good faith. And we can't stand back as City fans and not be involved because there was a huge clamor for Allison And a lot of that did come from City fans as well. You know, uh, we, yeah, we've-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, Um, I I was just going to pick up on that, yeah. Sorry, you blame
2: blame Swales for it, you know, for doing this, but I I think I said before, lots of fans are the same. They're perfectly happy. Leeds fans in their day were perfectly happy to bankrupt the club because they were in the semi final of the Champions League. Um, Yeah, well,
1: yeah, the the Ellison thing is interesting because um, by the end of 1978, I say, and we were still doing okay, apart from in the league, because we we got through to the court, we'd beaten AC Milan 5-2 on aggregate. We'd got, in fact, we were 2-0 up over there and threw another two-goal lead away, but that's a bit different throwing away a two-goal lead in Milan than throwing away Mm -hmm. a two-goal lead at home to Visev Lodge. And we beat them 3-0 at Main Road. So, we were five-two up on aggregate. We won the game five-two on aggregate. at The time. and unfortunately, we get the we get drawn again in the quarter final, which is going to be played in February, like the round of sixteen is for the Champions League. Uh, we we probably get the toughest team left in, which is Borussia Mönchengladbach, because <laughs> there were some yeah some teams you'd you'd have loved to have got, and probably that's the worst draw we could have got. Yeah. So um, by, so by the end of that year, we're doing well in Europe, but in the league, we're fifteenth, and. Uh, Peter Swales is seeing attendances going up. They're dropping by about three, four thousand. And when you've got to give Peter Swales credit, he made season tickets very cheap. His dream was to pack the ground every week, and he was prepared to sacrifice some revenue, potential revenue, to do that. So I think we pay. I think the top price season ticket, main stand, you know, middle of the main stand, was thirty-seven quid a season. Uh, I think you you pay eleven quid to stand on the Kipak. I think we paid eighteen quid in the north stand, if I remember rightly. So yeah, if, you know, you think about that and you put your twenty one games as well.
2: Yeah, it's you know, fairly astute because your, your season ticket monies are paid up front in those yeah. days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you were looking for some money to invest, then use your season ticket monies because you're you're getting them in early and that's yeah. Yeah.
1: it helps you to buy the player that you think might make a difference. And season tickets were a relatively rare not not rare phenomenon, but they weren't as quite as prevalent as perhaps they are now. Um, So I think we had about 25,000 season ticket holders, which put I think was possibly the the most or the second most that any club had. I'm not quite sure on that. You know, when we're looking at Peter's dream is to overtake United. So, you know, we've got a bit of a slump in form. Tony Books half a million pounds, he's paid out for players, is not not the best investment probably. And the one problem that gets talked about is that um, Tony Books' coach assistant was a guy called Bill Taylor. He was the England coach as well. Very good coach, very experienced coach, respected by the players. But both him and the story is that the board felt, or the board, probably Peter Swales, felt that Book Be- uh, and Taylor were a little bit too introverted. And I think Ron Atkinson was in place at United. But obviously, Ron Atkinson was a much more flamboyant, Big media Ron. friendly character. Sunbeds, yeah. lying on the Big sunbed. Ron. Oh, no, some, uh, uh, but big Ron's joke about Peter Swales was that Peter used to carry a card saying, in case of emergencies, call a press conference. So, so I think Peter looked across the... You know, there's this obsession with the United he had. He looked across the road and saw this flamboyant character that we had, saw us in a bit of a slump and, and thought, I want one of those. And of course, Malcolm was the obvious one. How, now, well, now how well were
0: United doing at this time, though, just by comparison?
2: Average, average. Yeah, not, not certainly not brilliant. But, but again, I... will That obsession that we lay at Peter Swales' door, we all have to share some of that blame. I I remember taking Victoria to a game, the end of the 94-95 season. We got beat at home, 3-2, by QPR. That was the year that Blackburn won their one and only premiership title. And we were, and I include myself because I was singing it as well, more concerned... About United losing the championship, you know, where's your championship now, scum? Than actually losing our last game to QPR. Um, as a fan, you pick up the fanzines at the time, and it was 60% of the content was slagging off United. So it wasn't just Peter Swales that was obsessed with United. A lot of the fans were obsessed. Not as much now, but we still sing i mean why why do we sing man united songs well, let them worry about us let's forget about united other than to laugh at them but you know the park the bus park the bus and all the that it's enough you know let them worry about us and and that that obsession wasn't solely peter swales he was in a position to do something about it i love that song but he,
0: park the bus man united it's just so cheapy.
1: yeah <laughs> but it's you know it, I preferred mine the gap. <laughs> well, when we said it in the last podcast, and it's worth saying again, had the board been of one mind back in the 70s, then we could well have overtaken United. Yeah, if, yeah. We'd, if, if we'd had everyone pulling in the same direction, we could well yeah. have overtaken United. But the harder we yeah, tried, the worse you know, he made. But things. Fi-
2: financially, we were a long way behind them. So when it came down to buying the the better class of player, we were not in the
0: same league. Because probably Um, about that point, they were made, you know, a lot of people say that in those days, match day income was the main source of revenue. But uh, but, United maybe in those days, had had they started exploring other revenue streams and that's why they were so far ahead? I don't think so. I
1: don't think so.
2: Just just the, the, the attendance for that game I've just mentioned, the, the last home game, 94-95, was 27,850. Now, we had more than that. Our first match in the second division when we played Blackpool, we had over 28,000 there. Um, Brian Horton was our manager. Mr. Swells had already gone by this time. And just to add insult to injury, our goalkeeper on the day was John Burridge. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you, you know, how far... How far have we slipped in in a relatively
1: short space of time? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing was going back to the 78-79 season, and we're at the end of the end of the year. Peter Swale sees things slipping out of his grasp a little bit. I think for the first time in his tenure as chairman, he hits the panic button. And you know, he could have given Tony Tony Book a little bit more of a chance. When you look at, I think when you're looking back. Looking back on, in hindsight, as we are doing now, it's quite clear that things were already starting to slip and maybe Tony Book had run his course. So, But instead of kind of being decisive, Peter, I think, came up the worst of all possible worlds and he brought in Malcolm Allison as a, a coaching supremo. What his actual role was is anyone's guess. But So you've got Tony Book as manager, Bill Taylor as the coach, and Malcolm as a sort of coaching supremo. And the story about bringing Malcolm in is interesting because it's another of Peter's little possible little distortions of, of, of the truth, really. He claims he was forced into it by his board. He was only a middleman. He had to answer to the people who had the shares. And, of course, the, the Joe Smith faction, uh, Simon Cousins and and um, Ian Niven, Chris Muir, Michael Horwich, um, he claims that they held the balance of power. Well, they didn't. Um, and the story told by Ian Niven is that it was very much Swales who backed the move to bring Malcolm Allison back, but the board was completely split. So it was 5-4, presumably the the, the Smith faction voting with the five, and and Niven said, Swales was one of the ones in favour of doing it. So he rubbished. Peter Swales' story, that his hands were tied, his arm was put behind his back, uh, and he was frog-marched into bringing Malcolm back. So so I think we can, again, it's another Peter Swales story we can treat perhaps with a, a bit of a pinch of salt. When, we, when match, Malcolm actually came in after we played half our league games, we'd had 18 points at that point from 21 games. In the second half of the season, the other 21 games, we got 21 points. So Malcolm didn't bring any massive improvement. And, and in fact... Um, he goes for what Gary Gary James or someone called the, the year zero approach, you know, we're talking about um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, where they cleared out all the cities. Um, and by the end of that season, as David already said, uh, Kenny Clements, very, very reliable defender, had gone. Gary Owen had gone. Peter Barnes had gone. Brian Kidd had gone. Issa Hartford went. Dave Watson's gone. And Colin Bells um, had to retire. And Glyn Pardew had retired already. So it's a complete and absolute clear out of the some of our key players and, and many of those didn't want to go so the story of that you know, Gary Owen was absolutely in tears Peter Barnes didn't want to go to West Brom and and I don't actually I don't think Ron Atkinson was at West Brom at that point because I remember Gary Owen had gone to or, or no uh, Peter Barnes said he saw at the ground, main road he saw Ron Atkinson and wonder what he was doing there and then afterwards he found out he'd be negotiating the transfer of Gary Owen so, so you've got, you know, all these players of which were the core of our team by the end of well, 1978 yeah.
2: 79 had gone. The 78 79 season, Gary Owen made 49 appearances, sorry, 45 appearances, scored 14 times or 14 yeah. goals from midfield. It's, uh, you know, it's outstanding performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, no, but that, that again, that. We signed up for it in a way for him to come. What we didn't sign up for was, was to him yes. to rip the team apart. Um, the, the players that we'd seen and loved, it's all those ones you've mentioned gone. Shannon Shannon had gone. He, he did 49 appearances and scored 15 times in the season before. And then he's gone. And then look at what we replaced them with. Well, that, that's
1: what I was coming to. So... You know, it was Kevin Reeves, wasn't a terrible buy. McKenzie, Steve McKenzie. Yeah. Steve Daly, a million pounds. Yeah. Mackenzie, yeah. Mackenzie, we paid 250k for, most expensive teenager. Yeah. Uh, Steve Daly, 1.1 million. Uh, and the deal was supposed to have been done at half that price. So, uh, again, there's another, yeah. he said this, I. he said this, he said that story. Uh, Malcolm thought the deal was going to be done at 650k or something. And Peter said, I've done it at 1.2 million. What be Shinton? I mean, yeah. uh, Michael Robinson, 750. <laughs> so uh, this, the story may be apocryphal about Michael Robinson. He was a young player at Preston. Preston, yeah. yeah, Had a decent reputation, but he was a young player, pretty unproven. And, and the story is that uh, Peter Swales approached whoever the Preston, I think it was someone quite well-known, was it Bobby Charlton or someone like that? I don't know. Anyway, approached he did, the Preston, well, he, he did or, there, yeah. Or someone, yeah, and said, I want Michael Robinson. I'll give you two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. And whoever it was laughed, thinking that's ridiculously no ridiculously overpriced. Swales thought he was laughing at the um because it was too low. And he said, oh, Right, I'll give you seven hundred and fifty thousand. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it was a mm-hmm. you know, we were we were paying ludicrously. daily, yeah. Steve Daly, you might be able to argue uh, you know, might have been worth it, but he, you know, we were paying ridiculous prices for unproven or lower quality players than we'd let go. We gave Steve Daly a 10 year contract oh, because, no. um, yeah, because originally Malcolm offered him a five year contract with a five year option. And Steve Daly is supposed to have said to him, I want to spend the rest of my career here. So so Malcolm or Peter Swells, whoever said, right, well, let's just make it a 10 year contract. You know, it, it's just the most unbelievable lack of foresight, lack of uh, prudence. Um, it's almost as though no one's thinking about the impact. It's just, you know, we've slipped back a little. We've got to catch up United. Let's spend what we need and do it in one fell swoop. And, and of course, it didn't work. And actually, we started off that seventy nine eighty season okay. Uh, by mid-October, we're, we're eight, but it was a very tight Race that season, and we're only three points behind the leaders, who were Liverpool. A month later, we're, we're just down in the bottom half twelfth, but we're still only um, four points off the lead. So you know, it's not a disaster at that point. And then, but then it does become a disaster because we go on a, a run, and we just get only get two wins in the next twenty-two league games. And from being four points off the lead, you know, reasonably played, five point, three points off the lead by around Easter time, we're nineteenth and we're just five points above the drop zone because, of course, it was 22 teams in those days. So you had to be 20th to be in danger of relegation. So we've got that five-point gap, but the teams below have games in hand. And, and, and we should, should also say that was the season, 7980 was the first of our Cup uh, upset seasons where we went out the FA Cup at Shrewsbury, snow-covered pitch, and we'd lost to Borussia Mönchengladbach in the UEFA Cup. And again, Malcolm, instead of putting out his most experienced team he left up people like Brian Kidd on the bench and gave Nicky Reid his full first team debut in the UEFA Cup quarterfinal against the most uh, fancy team. about the only good thing is that Dennis Stewart uh, has come back from the USA at this point. But we end up finishing 17th and our top scorer is Michael Robinson with nine eight in the league. I'm just looking at league goals Yeah, eight, eight league goals. On top of that, our turnover is 3.8 million. And we've made a loss of 1.7 million on that. So it's not quite, compar- not quite comparable, because in those days, transfer fees in and out were part of revenue and expenditure. So, so your transfer fee you received was part of your revenue, which is not these days. And any transfer you paid out was part of your normal profit loss expenditure. So you've got to take that into account. But if you think You know, a rough equivalent is would would be us losing something like 225 million on our 500 million turnover. Looking at the cash flow statement, we'd gone through nearly uh, 2 million pounds cash net, so we'd spent cash 2 million more than we'd earned. That's on a turnover of 3.8 million. By this time, we've now got a bank overdraft, and we're paying bank interest of 100k a year. Season ticket sales for the next season are well down on a very disappointing performance. And, and if you look back, you know, 79 80, Swales first got involved in seventy seventy one 70 71 season, I think. It's a decade where promised so much that, that started with us as top dogs and United uh, as failures. But it's ended with a complete, you know, we've not achieved our potential. We, we've we've been to one League Cup final and won. We've been to one and lost. We, we've got a runners-up spot. We've come fourth. But, but you know, we're down in the lower reaches now. And, and United are starting to head back up. So it's a complete turnaround, I say, from from where we started the, the 70s to where we finished it. David said the, the first signs of unease about, the, the you know, the, the, the amount and the quality of the signings we were making. People are now starting to have their doubts, basically. We go, we go into 80-81, uh, and we do not win in the first 12 games. I think we get seven points. We're bottom, and we're five points from the club above. Bull- or five points from safety. So it's five points from 19th place. And at this point, Peter's realized he's made a big mistake with Malcolm Allison. But, uh, Bill Taylor's gone by this point. Tony Buck's sort of general manager. Malcolm goes. So and, and this is the point where they're doing the Granada TV, they're doing yeah. the documentary. <laughs> yes. And in fact, the, the producer was um, Paul Doherty, who was Peter Doherty's son. I think, I think we might have mentioned that in, in the last one. So Granada doing this big documentary. Uh, and of course, it's a bit like the Amazon Prime thing, isn't it? Where they've got, they picked the right season. Granada have picked the right season, but not necessarily for the right reasons. So, so, of course, we, as we said, we've got this wonderful put- footage. Peter's, Peter's made up his mind that John Bond is going to be the new manager. John's at Norwich. He's done a great job at Norwich. They're very much uh, you know, a small, smallish club, and they're fighting to hold on to them. They want every penny of compensation we can get. You know, there's that famous scene in the Granada documentary Peter sat there nonchalantly at the boardroom table, sort of playing with a, a, a book of matches and, and, and flicking it. and um, Not really, you know, didn't come off across as a man intent on the task in hand. He's clearly made up his mind that John Bond's the man, and, and this interview is purely for cosmetics, almost, maybe even just for TV purposes. Anyway, so John Bond comes in, and, and, and he starts off quite well, because he brings in some experienced players who he knows have got some fight in them. So that's uh, Bobby McDonald, Tommy Hutchinson. Jerry Gow. And, and Tom, yeah, Jerry Gow. And Tommy Hutchinson, inc- incidentally. Bill Shankly rated him as one of the best players in the world at that point. So You know, Shankly was no mean judge of a player and John Bond does a fantastic job because to to the end of 1980 from from where he started um, we get 20 out of the 26 available points we also get to the League Cup semi-final where we meet Liverpool and there's the famous Alf Gray disallowed Kevin Reeves goal and and the feeling was if if that goal Reeves is supposed to have fouled or jumped on the back of someone and it was never there was never anything conclusive to prove that and everyone felt that if that goal had been allowed, we were on top. We might have gone on to win that game 2 0. We we went to Anfield, and I think we uh, Liverpool won that game 1 0. We went to Anfield and got a 1 0 draw. So we'd missed another League Cup final. However, at that point, we were doing quite nicely in the FA Cup. So we'd beaten Palace 4 0 in the, in the third round, as luck would have it, as often has. At uh, Norwich, we were drawn against Norwich in the fourth round, which was John Bonzal's team. We, we, we stuffed them 6 0. We won at Peterborough in the fifth round. And we got Everton in the sixth round, the quarter final. We drew at Goodison, and then we brought them to Main Road and won 3 1. So we're into, you know, we've got to a League Cup semi final, and we've now got to an FA Cup semi final, and we're playing Ipswich, and Bobby Robson was the manager. Very good team in those days. In fact, they were on for a treble. Because they were fighting for the league, obviously they were in the FA Cup semi-final, and they were doing quite well in Europe. So they were on for a well, what would have been a first treble
0: of its, yeah, uh, you know, a league and cup duel and a European trophy. And Paul which, Power, uh, I think, is scoring in every round of the. Paul FA cup.
1: Power, yeah, he hit a great goal, and um, so we're 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 in the FA Cup final, uh, you know. And at this point, there's there's very much a feeling that City, after the disaster of the Malcolm Allison second coming. John Bond has sta- not only stabilised things, but he's actually turned them round. You know, we're playing with a bit of flair. He's getting the most out of his players. You know, and if you think of back to Mal- Malcolm Allison and Jose Mourinho at United, again, there was a sense that he wasn't getting the best out of the quality that he had. So, so John Bond did a fantastic job, but there's a problem brewing already in the background. As we said before, that the board was very split on getting rid of Malcolm Allison, and, and John Bond always felt that the Allison faction never accepted him. Come on to this in a second. But, of course, the league was a bit of a write-off. So, you know, we'd done okay. We were safe. I'm just trying to remember where we came. Are uh, we? Twelve. Twelve. Game twelve. So we're quite safe. But, you know, we've we've got the chance of glory in the FA Cup final. And, of course, we go to Wembley. We play Spurs. Spurs have got uh, Ardiles and, and Ricky Villa. They've got Glenn Hoddle, Garth Crooks. You know, they've got a really good team. Much more expensive team than we've got. Because John Bond's operating... Very much under financial constraints because we've we've kind of emptied the coffers. You know, we've we've gone down the back of the sofa. We've emptied the kids' piggy banks, and there's not much left in the till. So John Bond's got to get by on what he's got, and Spurs have got this wonderful all-conquering team. I think they Spurs had floated on the stock market, so they were awash with money.
2: Yeah, well, it um, was they they were the class class outfit. A lot of very very good players, Uh, and we worked so hard. I was uh, living in London at the time and working in retail. My Saturdays were were very very hard to get off, but in those days you could rock up to a match, pay on the gate, and go in. One of my managers was a big Sunderland fan. And we, we struck a deal at the beginning of that season to say if Sunderland are in town or City are in town, we'll go together. The cup final was the centenary cup final. So tickets were like gold dust. And my late mother-in-law, God bless her, rang up and said, I've managed to get two tickets for you for the cup final. She just had ears like a bat when anybody said "Tickets in city." And she, she'd managed to get these tickets from a, from a news agent, strangely enough, which was my the game, work building I was the game I was in, uh, in Manchester who said he couldn't go. you got tickets, but he couldn't go because of work. And my wife had said, "You can't not go with Ray because you've been to all the games with him. And he's as neutral as I suppose you can get. We're one nil up, and he said, the only way Spurs are going to score is through a, a, a miracle. He said because you, every time they got the ball, there was there was some, one of ours at him. In in a way, very similar to some of the games we see now, where you know we didn't have all the stats, but every time our got the ball, there was a tackle and and a clean tackle uh, to dispossess him, and they just they had no answer to it. And really, again, it's it's one of those how different life could would have been had things worked out for us.
0: Yeah, we had to score for them, didn't we? Yeah, free kick. I was 10 years old watching this transfixed, you know, as a child, staring Mm. at this tiny little black and white portable TV in my bedroom. Friends outside, Liverpool fans all jeering and and waiting to see me whenever I came out. But we didn't get beat on that day. But oh my gosh, Tommy Hutchinson. It was a one man show in the end uh, there, wasn't it? He scored them
2: both. He scored our yeah. goal as well. And then that, to, that, to,
0: that, uh, that header, it sort of hit the back of his head and looped over Joe Corrigan into the net to equalise for Spurs. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Yeah, that was our moment.
1: It was. And,
0: and John Bond, actually, you think that
1: having been in the position we'd been in early in the season, we'd got to an FA Cup final, but we hadn't won it, but we hadn't lost it. But apparently there was some sort of incident between John Bond and Peter Swells and the other directors back at the hotel in the evening. I don't know what it was. But but John Bond said, I should have walked out at that point, um, mm-hmm. because basically he felt, he said, and he always said he got on quite well with Peter Swales, but he said Peter couldn't take defeat. It wasn't defeat. He said he couldn't bear not winning. Uh, and, you know, it, it, he spent all this money, he wanted to win something, and something went on between them. And John Bond was most upset. Uh, And and subsequently, in a later interview, said, I really should have walked at that point. Uh, Don't know what it was. But obviously, we went to the replay, which we lost to the famous Ricky Vehicle. I can give you a quick story about how things seemed to be on the up. We didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, of course. I was doing my accountancy finals about that time. uh, And I couldn't go to the match. I was on a course or or studying, couldn't do it, or in the middle of exams even. I I can't remember exactly. But we had tickets to see Bruce Springsteen and I um, had to make the decision. Thursday night, do I go and see Bruce Springsteen or do, do I go down to London? Well, it wasn't much of a decision. I couldn't really go down to London. But I was, I'm, I'm there thinking, well, yeah, we're doing quite well. We'll be in another cup final. I may never get the chance to see Bruce Springsteen again. Of course, it was, how many years was it? 30, 30 years before mm-hmm. we appeared in an FA Cup final again. So, that, that, but, but that was the feeling that, you know, John Bond was doing a good job. We were on the up. Yeah, just took you know. We just needed a bit of tinkering, and we will be back. But it didn't but quite work that out re- that replay. That replay
2: was horrendous because all the people who couldn't get tickets. It's a it's a midweek game now. That immediately in the week after. Etta came with me. We came. We were living in Croydon, so we got tr- parked the car at Croydon Station and trained in up into London, then train across. And I've never seen so many rough looking buggers in all my life going to a game. Uh, you know, the, we only had City couldn't, couldn't take full allocation of the tickets. So we had, they were all over us and they were, they were lighting flags and throwing them down into the paddock where we were. My brother in law was uh, beaten up on his way back to the bus. A bus were vandalized. Oh, and we came away and I said, just, we don't even open our mouths. And even coming out of the train station at Croydon, I could still hear, Chot-Nib, chot name. Buggers are everywhere. And, you know, that was one of those things. I mean, I, I met several years later some kid who... Uh, but he was, oh yeah, I remember. I remember it well. I think, you can't remember it. You were only three at the time. And oh, Ricky Veo, one nil, and his dad saying, "Shut up, shut up." you do not know what you're talking about. And he's on and on and I remember it. I said, "Oh, it was one nil, was it? Yeah, one nil. Yeah, Ricky Veo scored the goal. It was one nil." I said, "You remember it so well. You missed the other four goals out."
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, there was a there was definitely a fear. I mean, that game was obviously um. Upsetting, but you know, Spurs should have won the first. Yeah, they should have won the first. Yeah, they had the quality, artists against artisans, as David said. Um, but there was a feeling that the bad old days of Malcolm Allison were behind us and things were on the up, but little did we know. So we go go into 81 82, and of course, it, um, Martin O'Neill comes in uh, again, another good signing, and Trevor Francis. That's the Trevor Francis signing. Uh, and Peter's done this deal for Trevor Francis uh, right at the last minute. Apparently, Peter Swale, John Bond said Peter Swale's told him that we couldn't actually afford it. And Bond said, Yeah, we've gone this far. You've let me go this far. And you're now telling me the deal's not going through. He said, That's it. That's all the excuse I need to walk away from this club. And somehow, I think we were we borrowed, begged, dole it, whoever. Uh, Swales found the money. But we were paying um, apparently we were paying Trevor Francis hundred K a week, which was absolutely crippling us. And
0: that was a one million pound signing, wasn't it?
1: And a yeah. one million pound, we had to find the cash. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bond also signed, which which created a bit of controversy because I think he was getting on more than anyone else and the manager's son. Asa Hartford came back. Dennis Stewart was back and playing well with Trevor Francis. They worked well quite together. But he got, Dennis Stewart got a bad ankle injury, which basically finished him for the season. And that season was another memorable one because it was our last win at Anfield, Boxing Day 1981. On The following game, on the 28th, we played Wolves and beat them. And so we went into 1982 top of the league, although the team behind us had points in hand. That was the high spot, really, of that season. Uh, we ended up back in 10th, and we were tw- when we beat them in Boxing Day, uh, they were 12th, Liverpool, and we, we ended up 29 points behind them. So we had a real slump, that, that kind of 82, the second half of the 81-82 season. Our loss was just uh, under a million pounds, and our total debt had built, built up to 2 million. Although some of that was for building work. So, so half of that was supposedly for building work and, and half was a bank overdraft. So, so we'd really pushed out the boat to sign Trevor Francis and we really couldn't afford it. At this point, we were doing, redoing the main stand. So we were putting up those like tunnel dome things on the main stand. Uh, and the idea was to build some executive boxes, which would bring in quite a lot of money. But we we didn't actually have the money for the executive boxes. And Peter Swales has said that the money for the building was ring-fenced and that it wouldn't impact team building. But it's quite obvious that was another Peter Swales fantasy. And we'd overreached ourselves and Trevor Francis. We simply could not afford it. And he was sold to Sampdoria during the summer. So he's been there one season. 29 appearances in the 81-82 season. Uh, A little bit history-prone.
2: Yeah, fourteen goals in that time, though. So it's a goal yeah, all well. just just short of yeah, yeah. a goal every other game. You know, yeah, if if and yeah, yeah. again, if he had been fit enough to play, what what difference would that have made? Kevin Reeves banged thirteen goals in from yeah, forty eight yeah. appearances that
1: year as well. So it wasn't all yeah, doom no. and gloom. Yeah, a lot of the problem was Dennis Stewart was injured. I mean, Dennis yeah. was a regular, uh, very consistent, reliable goalscorer. But but the, again, the story is that Peter Sales said he felt Trevor wanted to go. He knew we couldn't afford him. Trevor Francis tells a completely different story. He said I was on holiday after the World Cup, and my agent told me he got a deal to Sampdoria. He said I didn't want to go. He said it came as a complete shock to him. But basically, we had to cut down. You know, we were spending too much money. Uh, and and the re- <laughs> the replacements for um, Trevor Francis were were David Cross and Graham Baker in midfield. Oh, so I mean, David Cross wasn't a bad player, but isn't it? You no, know, Trevor Francis. It was all now starting to fall apart a little bit to, to give a bit like a bit of context, there, there were financial issues in the game generally hooliganism had hit the standard of the stadiums the game wasn't that interesting united had lost two million pounds uh, in one season at that point they were spending whatever they could arsenal were apparently losing about half a million a year and arsenal yeah. with a money club and of course the attendances, were, that, yeah, attendances, attendances were, were going down
2: uh, and right right across the board, there were, there were a lot of clubs that had got big contracted players that they were struggling with because obviously the revenue wasn't there. So we, we weren't alone in that respect. Uh, an interesting um, swales, typical swales, goes on to um, TV talking about introducing uh, a cap on players' wages. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, a very youthful Gordon Taylor is on the other side of the debate. And he say, well, you know, you're one of the people that's responsible
1: for yes, players' we, wages. We'd we paid anything we needed to to get players. Yeah. And, he said, uh, you know, you,
2: you're you're one of these people that's brought in these players on big yeah. wages, and you can't blame the players if if people like you do that. And he said, it's in it's no good you talking about it. You're the one that should be, you know, it's, well, you'd you'd be against it. I said, well, of course I would. I represent yeah, the players.
1: Well, yeah, but but um, I mean, the power, there's a parallel to the Abu Dhabi early years, of course, but you know, Swales didn't have the money that Sheikh Mansour. Could put in, and, and to give an example, uh, say our crowds were down to under thirty thousand a game, you know, twenty seven, twenty eight thousand. Apart from when we played United, where we you know where we get forty. So, so clubs were in trouble, and this is where the the first threats of a breakaway Super League started emerging. Because the big clubs like Arsenal, like United, who were making losses, they wanted to keep all their gate money instead of having to share twenty five percent with the um, their opponents. But even so, we're doing OK. So we're going into November, we're, we're second. We're only two points behind Liverpool. By the end of 1982, December 1982, we're, we're back in ninth and we're 13 points behind Liverpool. But still, you know, still no great problem. And then at the end of January, we, we played Brighton in the FA Cup fourth round down there. We lost 4-0 and John Bond had had enough at this point. He walked out. And he, again, he told the same story, that his relationship with some of the directors wasn't great. Uh, he doesn't name them, but I suspect it's going to be Ian Niven, Chris Muir, Simon Cousins, uh, who were the old Joe Smith Brigade. And he, he told the story. Uh, John Bond, again, without going into detail, John Bond had quite a colourful private life at this point. One can only begin to imagine what that must have involved. But he said that one director said he would leak the news to the papers if Bond didn't resign. So basically, blackmailed him to try and get him out. But he'd had enough. He'd had enough of the, the boardroom squabbles. He'd had enough of manage, trying to manage on a, a shoestring. He walked. Now, obviously, it was short of cash. So we had to pay a lot of compensation to Norwich to get John Bond. So, so Peter Swells, who's cut, gutted the back room, basically, were down to bare bones in terms of staff and players. John Benson, who was uh, John Bond's assistant, was appointed as manager. And, of course, it saved him having to get tracksuits reprinted because it was JB for another JB. But but John Benson was a number two, not a number one. And we didn't, through February and March, we in, you know, we were in the top half of the table. Through February and March, we had no wins at all. And we get our first win at the beginning of April at West Brom. And we're 17th out of 22. And we're seven points clear of the relegation zone. So it's, you know, it's four games that, that we've got to lose. But we lose four of those next five games. At the end of April, we're in suddenly having been second in November. We're now just a point above 20th place, Birmingham, who've got a game in hand. On the final day, things sort themselves out, and as luck would have it, we're in 19th place, so safe. We're one point ahead of Luton, who who are in 20th place in danger of relegation. And guess who we're playing? We're playing Luton at Main Road. Now, even so, you know, it's a game we we should have won. Again, nothing goes right. And just a few minutes from the end, uh, Radiantic. Famously comes on for Luton. Crowd what was of the one
2: thing we as fans always knew City couldn't do? And that was defend. We needed to be on the front foot. We need to attack. And Benson set the team up not to lose. And Which was all we needed was, to do, yeah. Exactly. But right from the very... We, I was in Platte Lane with my uh, brother-in-law watching this. And he's 10 years younger than me. So he was... I mean, I was what thirty, so he's in his early twenties. I'm in my early thirties, and he he just could not believe. And he said, "Why are we doing this? Why are we, you know, passing the ball back? Why are we falling back all the time?" I said, <laughs> and, "And you know, there's there's 40,000 people in there, so I said, don't do this. Go forward. You know, if we had gone for the game, we would have won it, and we'd have been. Yeah. But you know, and it's only you know, it, it's two years after the FA Cup." Sh- yeah. You know, yeah. and and now we're facing this, and you just you you, you know the people say typical city, to, and, and you think it, anybody with half a brain will surely see that this is the wrong approach for this game. Brian
0: Horton, I think, was the captain of Luton on that day. Was that right? Yeah, yes, uh, it was. It was wasn't it? David I David Pleat,
1: manager, David Pleat with his crawling shoes, as we call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, God! I'd never forget that. Uh, of course, Redi Antic was the first manager to visit the Etihad because uh, he he was the manager, I think, of Barcelona. Was it Barcelona
0: when we played the first, the opening game at the Etihad? Yeah, it was Barcelona. And yeah. I think it was yeah. uh, when Pleat did his uh, celebration jig. It was actually Brian yeah. Horton that he went over to uh, yeah. to congratulate. Yeah. Uh, so, of course,
1: uh, yeah, no. they won. They were safe, and we were down, which, which you know, from uh, January seemed impossible. You know you, you can't imagine how we could have done that but we but we're a city so you know we always find a way of doing that sort of thing and, and so, so this and United of course um won the FA Cup that year so again it's a complete reversal of where we were in the 70s you know they won the FA Cup and we've gone relegated you know in in the 70s we would we were you know playing in finals and and they were relegated. so as much as Peter Swales wanted to emulate United he'd sort of done that but not quite in the way he imagined. And our finances are in a desperate state. you know that was the last thing we needed. We're paying about an eighth of our income in bank interest alone, and our debt now would balloon to about three million and this is on typical turnover of something like three million so two even probably less than that actually so So financially, we're in an absolute at, at that time
2: try, try, trying to console um some some of my nearest and dearest and i I do firmly believe. This to be the case, as it always has been, that the people behind the scenes, the board, the the director, are trying their level best and doing everything they possibly can to bring success. Uh, And the players, I mean, we have seen some, we've seen some awful players and we've seen some players over the years that you think, you know, you're a disgrace wearing that shirt. But in the main, the players went out there and they tried to do the best yes. um, and, and various combinations a little bit of misfortune some very dodgy decisions which but then you know which club can't actually say that but from that point going down could have and should have been a turning point yet yeah, we introduced um, a, a legend north of the border uh, we backed him up with an experienced manager from that division. Mean, Billy McNeil, McNeil.
0: Yeah. yeah. It was easy to memorize from that point on uh, the names of the city managers because there's always one manager and then his assistant took over when he left. So you had uh, Bond and then Benson and you had Billy McNeil and then Jimmy Frizzell. And, Frizzell. and that's, yeah. how, that's how it was easy for us to memorize the names of the managers. Come on, yeah, yeah Mc McNeil set
2: about transforming as much as he could, and he brought in you know people that he knew he could trust to do the job. Um, the likes of Derek Parlane, Jim Ptolemy, um Neil uh, Mcnab, and Mick McCarthy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, two yeah. names yeah, even today Scottish that with Asian, City, fans. City yeah, yeah. Scottish basically, well, he, didn't
1: he? Yeah, yeah. He brought players in he knew would do a job at that level. He had Jimmy yeah, Frisell. Yeah. You know, again, he's setting us up the right way, but the cupboard is absolutely bare. And it's interesting, Billy McNeil couldn't struggle to settle it. He nearly went back um very early on, but he, he was persuaded to, to 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 stay and 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 you know he makes a, a good job of it. So we were challenging for promotion. Uh, up to around Easter time but we fell away uh and we ended up fourth 10 points we were 10 points off the promotion places so um yeah we, we, it was okay but not really good enough and again it's a bit like we are in a situation like as we were in 98 99 where we've got to come up otherwise things you know could change for for the worse and i think the 84 85 season is probably one that's nearly as crucial in our history as the uh, 98 99 one in some ways Oh yeah,
2: yeah. It was it well. It was up or bust. Um, yeah. Because you you knew you couldn't hang on. McNeil was doing a reasonably good job for us. Um, yeah, yeah. And and you know there was there was actually at that point some good. Um, younger players coming through as well. Yeah, the youth um, team between, to come through.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: You, you, had, you had this this sort of balance that that promised a great deal, but then you know that's that city who promised a lot. You know, but, it, but it's a sort it, of balance
1: it, we had back in the seventies, isn't it? Where we had these this core of very experienced players: Brian Kidd, you know, Joe Royal, Mike Doyle, and players like that. Tommy Booth, yeah, yeah. and we had the good youngsters, you know, the, the um, Gary Owen, Peter Barnes, Paul Power yeah but
2: again with McNeil, he's you know again, we always read uh, how many managers he went through swales that is in this time, but not all of the people actually were sacked. you know quite a lot of the managers had had enough and and, and yeah. slung the hook and and Billy McNeil actually had the distinction of taking two clubs down in the same
1: season. yeah, but even so, I mean, if we're talking about Peter Swales. He's still—he's not making knee-jerk decisions at this point. The, the knee-jerk decision he probably made was to get rid of Tony Booker Well, not get rid of Tony Book, but move him aside, bring Malcolm Allison in. Yeah, yeah. but still, yeah. he's making. Yeah, John John Benson was a you know uh, a temporary appointment. I think really it was always intended to be, but he's, he's still making good decisions.
2: Yeah, if. As I say, for the for the first season, stabilised it. Second season got us promoted, so you can't really complain. You know, no. I'd like to have seen him stay a bit longer and finish the job. Uh, but he went in September '86.
1: Yep. Yeah. So, so that '84 '85 season was said quite a crucial one. I mean, the the crowds were down among the you know the twenty one twenty two thousand level at this point, but as a team, we're doing quite well. So, by the time we get to mid March, we're we're top of the of Division Two, and there's a five point gap. To Blackburn in second, and by this point it's three points for a win. And then, of course, being city, we nearly managed to screw it up, and we have a barren spell. You know, at the business end of the season, there's no win in six games. We only get three points, and we're down to fifth, but we're only a point off the promotion places. But uh, Oxford and Birmingham were were the top two teams at that point, and they're six and five points ahead of us respectively. So, so we're aiming at third place, really, unless we put a big uh, yeah, yeah, that, run in or, or they that, fall apart.
0: Or, just being clear for the listener, so after John Bond leaves, then Benson, his assistant, takes over at the end of that season. Billy McNeil comes down. in. Billy McNeil comes yeah, in. Yeah, beginning and, of the
2: 83 season.
0: Yeah. 83, and, uh, yeah. He 83 does, 84. He, he doesn't get us back up in the first for, season in charge, but gets get us back up in the up second.
2: second. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That year was the... That as we were winning our last game against Charlton, um, where Paul Simpson the fire had an absolute, yeah. a- absolutely stunning game. That was yeah. the, the same afternoon that the Bradford
1: fire yeah. tragedy happened. Which kind of took the took the gloss off proceeding somewhat. But anyway, you know, he's uh, done the job. We're back in the first division. Things are still tight financially. You know, we're still trying to make up ground. That we lost from, you know, Malcolm Allison coming back and Trevor Francis, uh, and it's an unremarkable season in the league. But we actually do get back to Wembley in the full members' cup final. But at that point, against um, uh, yes. Chelsea from wasn't Europe, it? and yeah, against yeah. Chelsea, and we had to play it. Both of us had played the day before in a league game. We would played the Old Trafford derby. Imagine well, what Pep would say if we had to do that now. But anyway, it's a very exciting match, 5-4. Well, probably one of the most exciting games played at Wembley. But, you know, it's a fairly meaningless trophy, really. But the, the other big thing um, is that the youth team won the FA Youth Cup that season, which is just as well as our debts now are up to £4 million. So, so, so at this point, money's still very, very tight. And Billy McNeil's um, feeling the strain a bit. But he's done three seasons with us. You know, and he's done. He's, you know, he's got us up out of the championship on little money. Him and Jim and Frizzella have done a really good job. And then I think we're, we're going to close it off at, at, at this point. But uh, we're into eighty-six, eighty-seven. Billy McNeil's the manager. You know, we've had a season of consolidation in the uh, first division. We're not going to win it, but we're there. We're back there. And, and at this point, um, Freddie Pye was apparently appointed director in charge of team affairs. And according to Billy McNeil. Freddie Pie was a great pal of Ken Bates, who was Chelsea chairman at the time. And somehow, Ken Bates managed to convince uh, Freddie Pye that Gordon Davis was the man to solve his pro- problems. S- so McNeil said he didn't want Gordon Davis, but he was told he was going to have to have him. He didn't really want to uh, get on with Freddie Pie particularly. You know, he felt he was the team manager. It was a bit like Mancini, really, and Brian Marwood and uh, Chicky down. He was the team manager. He wanted to run things. He didn't feel comfortable having someone sitting over his shoulder and had no intention of Of kind of working with him so so partly that's I guess his fault but Freddie Pye wasn't a football man Um, you know he was a scrap metal merchant and uh, a few games into the season Billy McNeil accepted an offer from Villa everyone told him not to do it because Villa were in a bit of trouble but he just wanted to get I think he just wanted to get away at at the time and he went to Villa and of course as David said earlier he achieved the uncomfortable record of relegating two teams in one season I think United have got Ferguson at this point and they were backing him financially and fully enough, they backed him. Uh, they sat Atkinson a few days after we'd drawn one all there at Old Trafford. So, so of course, drawing with us was considered um, a second offence, really. But we didn't start that campaign very well. This is really when the campaign against Peter Swales uh, started in earnest. And I've got, just looking at Gary James's book, Swales was claiming he'd improved attendances. And basically, our attendances had gone down from the third best in the league to averaging out under the 20,000 mark. So there was a leaflet put out by a group of season ticket holders in the main stand, which basically was casting doubts on Peter Swales' competence, proving that his claim to have improved attendances was actually a drop of 12,000 from 73 when the average was 32,000. It had gone up. And, and now, you know, um, 13, 14 years on, we're down under 20,000 attendances. So this is really the start of the Swales out campaign but it took a few years to obviously to come to fruition we've been relegated we've got to go to West Ham on the last game of the season and this is this was the start of the love affair between City and West Ham fans because West Ham as I know from personal experience back in the 70s was not a very welcoming ground for an away supporter I can't remember what season it was but we went a few of us went down there on the uh, special train and it was so violent in there we came out before the kickoff Because in those days, you had to get in quite early to get a space. But there were so many fights breaking out. They were so clearly intent on trouble. We just decided it wasn't worth it. Didn't even see the kickoff of that game, let alone the final whistle. So it was a bit of trepidation. We were at West Ham on the the last day. We lost 2-0. We were relegated. Uh, And all the West Ham fans started to come on the pitch towards the City fans. I I wasn't there that day. And, And anyone who was said they were getting a bit frightened. But the West Ham fans gathered in front of the City fans and started singing, you'll be back, you'll be back. Uh, And apparently they escorted them down to the station, and and that is, you know, that is the start of the kind of mutual respect between um, City and West Ham fans, which, which, and that was back in '87 season. But again, you know, we're in the yo-yo period now. We've gone down in '83, we've come up in '85, we've gone down again in '87.
2: Yeah, in in, in that particular uh, period, that this wonderful businessman. Sold the rights to the city badge, which now you think, how much is your image? You know, we took image rights. He sold the rights to the badge, uh, which is when Kappa came in. That's why a new badge was designed, because we couldn't do anything at all with the old one. Uh, He also agreed a flat rate. For the city shop, now it there wasn't a time. You know, you didn't go in. You you got one scarf and that lasted you for years. You know, you, people didn't go into the st- the store. Not like now, where you see everybody coming out with bagfuls of goodies and bagfuls of swag and and everybody. You
1: know, replica shirts weren't. Well, it was just. The, it was just a counter, wasn't it? And just, yeah, Janice uh, Mum, uh, Stan Gibson's daughter, was behind yeah, the counter yeah. usually. But, but it's a flat, a flat rate, flat rate
2: rent. Boom. Yeah, you know, just just really to to get it out of the way, so somebody could have made a lot of money in those days um but this is where a chap called imri varadi crops up yes this appeared 35 times for us in the 86 87 season and for for our younger listeners uh, this is where the banana came from
0: Imre banana
2: that's right. No, the, no, the story yeah, yeah. goes, yeah, the people they couldn't pronounce his name, so he was called Imri Banana. And and City was the first club to actually introduce inflatables. And the inflatable of course was an inflatable banana. Mm. Um you've got uh, a goalkeeper called Perry Suckling appearing in that time and he yeah. was oh dear oh lord. Um and a fella called Grealish, actually yeah, Tony yeah. Grealish, yeah. Uh, yeah. John Gidman, who came to us yeah. from Aston Villa, uh, an Kingman. England international, actually. Kenny Clements had come back by this time, having been away for a little while.
0: Um, so it's, you know, uh, Paul Molden was another one who made his breakthrough. So. The, youth, the youth players like Redmond and Paul Lake and David White are beginning to come through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, at, they, at come,
2: they come through under Melbourne. Right, H, well, but there was, there was a lad that we bought from Blackpool um, called Paul Stewart. Yep. Yeah. In that season, um, he and he didn't great. stay with us for very long. But the, f- the following year, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, which we'll touch on next time, Paul Stewart played fifty-two times and scored twenty-eight goals. Now there was a point where he wanted to come back after he'd been at Tottenham, and Mister Swales would have none of it. I don't like people coming back, he said. So, yeah. well, hang on. I think, I think yeah. we
1: couldn't afford.
0: We couldn't afford him. Yeah, well, that's... well, I think we're we're sort of straying into the yeah. area yeah. of of part oh, three, brilliant. guys. No, they're called teasers, Mike. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so shall we uh, shall we wrap it up there, guys, for yeah. for, for yeah. part two? Yeah,
1: yeah. Part, part three, we'll talk about again, you know, the uh, our mini renaissance in the in the late eighties, early nineties, and then mm-hmm. the end of the Swales era. Right. Okay. For, forward, forward with Franny, except it wasn't forward. Oh my okay. oh,
0: gosh, we could just talk about this for uh, easily another hour, <laughs> uh, I'm sure, but we've got to tie it off. So listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, the next time that you'll hear from us will be after the Everton game where we'll talk about what happened there and we'll also do uh, go back and look at what happened at Hoffenheim Until then, we'll stop here and as always say have one on us and up the blues. <laughs> Let's stand for something that's